God, thanks for this day. And I thank you for yet another opportunity to um, just be here with your people. I pray, God, that uh, everything that you want to say to us, everything that you want to do in our hearts, that we would not only be available to let you do that, but I pray that uh, I wouldn't get in the way of you. And so uh, anything that is important, I pray those would be the things that stick, that you would communicate um, those things through me and the things that are unimportant, uh, I just pray that they wouldn't. And so help us to grow closer to you today as a result of what we learn from uh, your word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. So we've been exploring uh, Advent Right, the theme of Advent, and we've—if you haven't noticed, if you—if you're a regular here, if you're normally a DC person, uh, you might have noticed that we're doing this in a little bit of a different way. And so, again, Advent always—it means coming or arrival. And we've been asking this question: Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that arrival? Because we believe, of course, that it's not just this first arrival of Jesus that we celebrate, but it's that future arrival as well, when He will come and make everything right. And so, we've been asking the question: Are you ready for the arrival of Jesus? all he brings in preparing for hope? Are you ready for the arrival of Jesus and all that he brings in anticipating peace? Are you ready for the arrival of Jesus and all that he brings in celebrating joy? And I know that the precipitation scared some of you away last week, but you missed a very joyful experience. You know, it's genius for the people who work with kids to actually incorporate the fact that they like to stomp just incorporate that into the song and just put them on something hollow. And it was awesome. Uh, what I love about kids is it, it's on. It, it, you, it, I mean, you can try, you know, you can try to work with animals and kids and get them to do what you want them to do. But ultimately, when, when they're there and it's the moment, it's just going to go. It's just going to happen. And so I love that because it is, it's like this display of joy. And so we talked about that the idea of joy is not even, it's not always happiness, that we can actually be joyful in times where maybe we're struggling or maybe times where uh, we have difficulties in our lives. And so this week we're going to wrap up this Advent series and we're going to focus on what makes the arrival of our Messiah different than any other event in history. It's actually the part of the story that makes us as Christians unique from all other religions. And it's this word right here, incarnation. It's not a breakfast drink, okay? It's not SpongeBob. Incarnation, no, it's not that, okay? Incarnation is a word, we don't really talk about it maybe very much, but it's actually, it's a very essential part of our theology. Uh, the incarnation distinguishes Christianity from Mormonism, from Jehovah's Witnesses, from Christian scientists, from Unitarians, from any others who may mention Jesus or acknowledge him as a person or a prophet or any other thing, but they do not fully acknowledge the very essence of what and who he is. Incarnation is a word that we probably don't use very often in our daily lives, but it's essential for us to know this word. The story of Christmas is all about God's love for us. How do I know that? John 3.16 tells me, right? For God so loved the world that he, what? that he gave. So he loved first and he gave his only son to us. And whoever believes in him, will not die, but they'll live for eternity with him. 
So the story of Christmas is all about God's love for us and the incarnation of our Messiah reveals the power and the depths of that love. And so here's the definition. Here's what incarnation means. It literally means embodied in flesh or taking on flesh. So here's the deal. In Christian theology, the incarnation is this belief that we have that Jesus Christ, also known as the son of God, was made flesh by being conceived in the womb of a woman, right? The Virgin Mary. We know the story. Jesus is also described in scripture as logos of God. And that's a word that means, it's a Greek word for word. So he's actually God's very word made flesh or God's perfect word made flesh. John 1.14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, and the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we call him Jesus Christ. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua HaMashiach. And what we're saying when we talk about the incarnation is that he's not only fully God, but he's also fully human. He's not half and half. He's not part of one. He's not a manifestation of something spiritual. Jesus was not only fully flesh, but he was also fully God. In Matthew's gospel, he gives us this quick overview of how it all happened and why it's important. And so we read this every Christmas, right? Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And you would too, right? Because every time an angel shows up, it's scary at first. So you're going to do whatever he says. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew. So it's a passage. Most of us have heard this, right? And perhaps in your devotion this week, you've even read this. Or if you follow some kind of a reading schedule, this has likely popped up over the past few weeks. But this passage here, Matthew says that all of this happened to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. And that prophet is actually Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, where he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means, as we've learned, right, God with us. But then in verse 21, it says, She will bear his son, and you will call his name Jesus, or Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, this is one of those things where the translation of Yeshua in Hebrew over to Jesus, we lose something, we miss something. Because Yeshua literally means Yahweh is salvation, or God is my salvation, or simply salvation. So what all this means when we put these two things together, when we put Emmanuel, God with us, and we put Yeshua, salvation together, we get this, God is now with us, to save us. God is now with us to save us. That's what the incarnation is all about. It's this mysterious thing that we can't necessarily comprehend how the son of the living God took on flesh like us to save us. And let me just tell you, you know, I turned 49 a few weeks ago 
And as I get older, the more that I learn about God, the more that I learn that I don't know about God, right? And some of you folks that are a little further along on this journey than I am are nodding your heads like, yes, just wait. I can see it in your eyes. I I don't know everything there is to know. There are aspects of our scripture, guys, that we have to concede are supernatural. And what that means is that they came about through a power outside of our understanding of the natural world. And so that would lead some people to argue, well, in that case, if it's supernatural, if I can't explain it, then it can't be trusted. It can't be true. Or those same folks might say, well, you know what? I only believe things that, I, that are empirically proven or things that I can trust, like science. And I'm sure that you probably know people that are like that. But the truth of the matter is, even science holds mysteries in the same regard. Right? Scientists have theories about everything, including our universe, and how they became, or how they began from nothing. But if you think about the answers related to like the catalyst or the event that set off the creation of the universe, the thing that started it all, or even going further back and what was before that, you still have to accept, no one, none of us were here, right? If you were, I'd love to speak with you after the service. But um, none of us, scientists, Christians, whatever, I mean, not to say that you can be one or that you only have to be one or the other, you can be both. But my point being, no one was here. None of us were here. And so we have to accept on faith uh, some of these aspects of the beginning of our universe, whether we believe uh, in uh, what scripture tells us or whether we believe in evolution or some strange permutation of those two things. The beginning has to be accepted on faith. And so I would argue that proof for a divine architect that's masterminded all of this um, far outweighs the idea or the statistical proof of it all just happening. Um, We can see design everywhere we look in every creature, in nature, in every plant, and we see that design echoed over and over again. And so to tell me that that's accident, I can't accept the fact that that was accidental or that wasn't planned by a, a creator of some kind. And so again, these are mysteries that we may never understand, but we don't have to understand how it happened to appreciate it. And I think that's where we get stuck sometimes in our faith, right? We feel like we have to know all the answers. I've got to have it all figured out and then I can believe it. Well, that's not what Jesus calls us to, is it? Right? Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say, hey, here's the map. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's how your life's going to go. Here's all the ministries that you're going to be involved in in the future. Follow me. No, he says, follow me. And then everything comes after that. Right? So that's what we're called to do. There are mysteries we may never understand. We don't have to understand it to appreciate it. And so the author of Hebrews gives us a really cool perspective. This is Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. And now what he's talking about here is Adam and Eve, the very beginning when man fell, right? All people share in that sin. And so he himself, meaning the Messiah or Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He goes on in verse 16 to say, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us people. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, it's hard to say, propitiation, I practiced that so long today, propitiation for the sins of people that basically uh, making like uh, covering those sins is what he's saying there, to pay that debt 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is one you got to underline in your Bible, whether it's electronic or otherwise. This is a go-to verse. If you're ever suffering with something or you feel like you're being tempted in a way that you cannot overcome, listen, anything that you go through in your life regarding temptation, Jesus faced the same things. And these were real temptations. He didn't have the extra advantage of, you know, being fully God in that regard. It wouldn't have been a real temptation if he relied on those things. He set aside that godness in order to come and to do basically what the scripture says. We may not understand how it all happened, but we know why it happened. The incarnation of Jesus is life changing for us. The life and the death and the resurrection of Emmanuel, God with us, is Yeshua, our salvation. It saves us from our sins and from death. So God with us forgives our past. God with us transforms our present. And God with us seals our future. Amen. 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 Tammy agrees. It's good. So <clears throat> sin and rebellion of humanity had sealed our fate. And our fate was an eternity of separation from God. And we've talked about that before, but don't let that statement blow by you. I think especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, don't let that statement blow by you. Our fate was an eternity of separation from God. And so what that means is separation from God is separation from his nature and from his attributes. And so I've been thinking about it this way. This has totally captured my imagination lately. 1 John 4.16 tells us that God's very nature is what? Love, right? That God is love. It's not like an adjective describing him. I mean, it can be, but he actually is love, meaning it comes from him. It emanates from him that any love that we would know, any chance that we would have of knowing what real love is, comes from God because he is the definition of that very thing. So when we say that our fate was an eternity of separation from God, that means that our fate was an eternity of separation from love, doesn't it? Love isn't just a descriptor, it's his very essence. And we throw that word around like confetti, right? I love tacos and I love my wife. Well, I guarantee you I love my wife more than I love tacos, okay? Um, you might like laser cats, you might love laser cats, but then you love your mama. Well, I hope you love your mama more than laser cats. You're like, laser cats? What are you even talking about? Exactly. <laughs> right? All these things that we say that we love, we just kind of throw it around like this. But the truth of the matter is, there's definitely a hierarchy for the things that we really love and the things that we dislike or that we enjoy or that make us happy, you know, those kinds of things. So how do we know what love is? And so you're thinking in your head probably song lyrics right now because <laughs> that's what happens to me. So I either want to sing, what is love? Right, I want to do that one. Or I want to go, I want to know what love is. That's for the old school people. Both are scriptural, those statements, by the way. We want to know, what is love really? Like, what is it? Like, how do we know the truth of what love is? Well, we have a great litmus in scripture. This is probably hanging on your wall at home. It was probably given to you at your wedding. And it goes like this, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. and is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. I like to put love in where the it's are. Love is not irritable. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures 
all things. So let's jump back. Eternal separation from God means eternal separation from love. But it also means eternal separation from knowing and experiencing everything on this list that defines love. Patience, kindness, generosity, humility, respect, gentleness, forgiveness, and truth. So apart from God, we're doomed because we are absent these aspects of his nature. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus came as God incarnate so that we could know God and share his love for eternity with him. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, if you might look at this passage the way that I tend to look at it, where I look at it and, and I kind of start grading my abilities to love this way, right? I look, I look at it as a checklist and I'm like, man, I wish I could be a more loving person. Or, uh, man, if I could only be more patient. Or, dang it, why can't I show more kindness? Or, you know, any other thing you want to point out on there, wondering what truth maybe is. But I think it's okay to want to be better at these things, and I think it's even okay to take steps to get better at them. But I, uh, and you know, and Paul shares this list for, with us for a reason, right? Because he wants us to know what love looks like so that we can embrace it. Um, if you work for the government and you're working uh, with money and currency, one of the things that they will do to train you to spot a counterfeit, they don't show you a bunch of counterfeits. What they do is they show you the real thing over and over again. You study the real thing, what real money looks like, so that when the counterfeit comes, you can spot it, right? Well, it doesn't have this feature or this thing, you know, the little strip is not going through here. It doesn't have the watermark. And if, if you've ever been in a situation where, you know, I've only maybe happened once in my life, but you high rollers in here probably hand big bills to people all the time. And so they, you know, the lady at the store is holding it up to see if she can see the watermark and stuff. And she's trying to make sure that that's not counterfeit. And so Paul shares this list because he wants us to know what the real thing looks like so that when we see all these permutations and fake versions and things, that don't match up with this, we can spot the counterfeit. And there are lots of things in this world that masquerade as love. So Paul wants us to know what it looks like. So striving to have more of these things in our lives, it, it may help us. It absolutely may. But here's the deal. We may get better, like if I try to be less resentful, for instance, or something. I may get better at that for a while. But at the end of the day, I'm still human. And in all of my striving, I'm gonna fall short. Uh, I'm going to have moments where that resentfulness or whatever it is like jumps back up. And then at the end, what happens is I end up feeling shameful and I end up feeling condemned because I just can't seem to get it together, right? I just can't, if only I could just get this together. And so what that is, guys, is that's condemnation. And condemnation is not from God. If you're made to feel shameful, um, if you're made to feel hopeless when you look at this list, that's condemnation. That doesn't come from God. That's not right. And, and that's not even the point of this. These attributes of God's love help, they develop in our lives naturally through this vibrant relationship that we have with him and with his spirit working in our lives. So if you're not seeing these things, it's time to check in for sure. But it's not about condemnation. It's about conviction. Because here's the difference. Condemnation pushes us away from God right? When we're condemned, we, we do this. We want to hide. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden trying to cover ourselves. Condemnation does that. But when it's about conviction, conviction draws us closer to God. 
When we're convicted about something, when we're like, okay, that needs to change in my life, what God is saying, what his spirit's saying to us is like, yeah, I want you closer to me. And this is a barrier. This is one of those things that needs to change. Not only so you can be closer to me, but so you can be closer to all the people that I've put in your life. Condemnation pushes us away from God, but conviction draws us closer to him. So here's a question for you. Is Jesus, is God's word made flesh dwelling in the neighborhood of your life today? Like, is it easy just kind of somebody you're sort of connected to or that you've said yes to or like, yeah, I mean, he's a great guy or I really, you know, love all those movies that are on Netflix about, or whatever it is. Like, or do you have this distant relationship with him or is he like in the neighborhood of your life? So what if I told you that God's love and all those attributes that we listed earlier, what if I told you that all those things are a gift? Because those are a gift that he wants you to have, a gift available to all who fully welcome Jesus into their lives. It's a pretty good gift, isn't it? There's a story about this small family. It was a husband and a wife and a son. And they lived in this modest house together. And this son was kind of high strung and he tended to get into a lot of trouble. Hello, right? <laughs> me. Tended to get into a lot of trouble. Parents were having a lot of problems with that. And so the father finally said, listen, I don't know what else to do with you. If you break the rules of our home one more time, I'm gonna have to send you to the attic and you're gonna only have bread and water for your supper that day. Seems pretty extreme, right? But apparently he was at the end of his rope and he didn't know what to do. And so as you might expect, of course the child broke one of the rules of the home and was sent to the attic. But here's the thing. While his son was up there, the father was restless. He was sad. The father could not eat. He had this boy on his mind and on his heart. And his wife said to him, like all wives do because they're intelligent, she says, listen, I know what you're thinking, but you can't bring the boy down from the attic because what's gonna happen is he's gonna disobey again. He's not gonna learn his lesson. But even more than that, he's not going to respect your word. You can't cheapen your relationship with him as his father, by failing to keep your promise to him. And so the husband replied, because he's a good husband, you are right, my wife, (laughs) right? He says, you're right. I'm not gonna break my word because to do so would cause my son to lose respect for my word. But he's so lonely up there. So he kissed his wife goodnight He climbed up the stairs to the attic. He ate bread and water with his son. And when the child was sleeping on those hard boards, he used his father's arm as a pillow. He who knew no sin suffered for the sinner. And I think this story is just this beautiful illustration of God's heart for us. A love that's made real, a love that took on flesh 
it also reminds us of why that's so important. Earlier, I mentioned 1 John chapter 4 and how it tells us that God's nature, his very nature is love. As we close, I just want to look at that again in a few of the verses before it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. Moreover, we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as deliverer of the world. If someone acknowledges that Yeshua is the Son of God, God remains united with him and he with God. Also, we have come to know and trust the love that God has for us. God is love and those who remain in this love remain united with God and God remains united with them. The arrival of Jesus is God's love made real and on display. God's love is demonstrated in this incarnation of Jesus and the purpose is to rescue humanity from sin. If we go back to verse 15, God's spirit's at work and active in the lives of those who believe in Jesus, it says right there. For those who believe in Jesus, God's spirit is active in the lives of of those people. Well, what does that mean, right? Another word we throw around, believe. Believe is more than just making a mental assent or deciding something. It's like, oh, I believe that, or yeah, I, I agree with that. It's demonstrating that agreement by the way that you live your life. It's demonstrating that agreement by uh, changing the way that you live your life. And so it's believing is surrendering your will and your ways to him. And so if that's you today, if you've done that, God now resides in your life. And so all of those aspects of his love mentioned in 1 Corinthians begin to develop as a part of your nature because of the work of his spirit in your life. That's the gift, right? That's the thing that he gives you. As you continue to follow him, the things that you go through, the hard things, the good things, the times where people bless you, the times where you can bless other people, all of those things are developing his character, those character traits that we talked about in you as you continue to follow him. And then in verse 16 here, John wraps up his thought by saying this. He says, listen, Christians demonstrate their belief in Jesus by loving others but it's also through admitting our sin and letting God transform our lives. This is what being a true child of God and a member of a fellowship or this believing community, all these people that we are a part of, brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus, that's what it looks like. So each and every Christmas season, as we meditate on these themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love, what we're doing is we're preparing for this arrival of Jesus. The focus isn't on a baby in a manger, right? The focus is on a savior who came into our world to rescue us. Yes. And the focus is on a righteous king who wants to be in charge of your life. Again, God is now with us to save us. Would you bow your hearts with me? Father God, we thank you so much just for this day you've given us. We thank you for Jesus and that you had a plan from the very beginning. That you wanted to make sure that we could spend eternity in relationship with you. We thank you that you're not some distant or detached creator, but that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And so we invite you today to claim us as your own and transform our lives. We pray that your sacrifice for us would not be in vain, but that you would strengthen us to love others the way that Jesus did. We thank you for our Savior.
both human and divine, our mediator and our advocate before you, and that he knows us because he is like us. And God, I thank you for the gift of your son and all that you continue to do in our lives and in our world through him. And now as we leave, God, I pray that you would just shine brightly in the life of each person um, that calls this place home and those that know you, God. And that as we enter a new year and close out a decade, God, that it would be, I don't know, just a year that you shine brightly in our lives like never before. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.